This is episode number 16 of Hypercritical. This is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be criticized, complained about, and uh, torn apart by uh, my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. We'd like to say a quick thanks to Web Trends. Uh, they just came out with Analytics 10. And also to MailChimp, who has uh, something very cool called Alter Ego app, which we'll tell you about both of those as we go on with the show. John Syracuse, how are you doing uh, this fine Friday afternoon? I'm just Andy. Good. Good to hear. People were pointing out that on la- last week's show, we had talked about perhaps doing a shorter show. And people were pointing out that not only didn't we do a shorter show, but it's the longest one in recent memory. It wasn't that long. An yeah. hour and 43 minutes. I replied minutes. to that person on Twitter and, and gave the average show length of our show versus the average <laughs> show length of the same number of most recent episodes of the talk show. And we were like 20 minutes under the talk show. <laughs> of, course, of course you did. So I feel like we're doing <laughs> fine. We're, do- oh, we're doing great. We're All doing right. super. So follow-up time. Yeah, a few. Yeah, I've been thinking that the follow-up is slowly morphing into something other than follow-up because we do do follow-up from the previous show uh but sometimes we reach back like seven shows or whatever and Mm. then it kind of devolves towards the end into like various tidbits from current news you know what i mean and then we do the main topic after that so i don't know if i come up with a new name for it or hybrid name or something but i'll think about that maybe for next show but for now let's do some actual follow-up from the the last show uh we talked about programming languages and kind of ended talking about Perl. Uh, and despite the length, I felt like that last show, uh, I had to cut a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about just because I wanted to get to hit every topic. Um, mm-hmm. and I didn't get to go in, in depth as far as I wanted on some of them. So for example, when I was talking about Pearl, I felt like I cut that short on both ends. I didn't get to talk in detail about all the things that I thought were wrong with Pearl. And I also didn't get to talk enough about all the things that I thought were good about it these days. Uh, so I'm not going to do that now, but maybe we'll just tuck that in our pocket for, another show in the future sometime. Um, and that was like the second show in a row where we talked about programming and tech topics. And we had asked for feedback of, you know, like if you, if you like programming stuff, send it in and we'll just assume everybody who doesn't reply doesn't like it. We did get, I thought a reasonable amount of feedback of people saying they did like the programming stuff. I don't, I don't know if it was a surprising amount. It surprised me a little bit. I thought we'd get one or two people saying I like programming, and I thought we'd get an equal amount of people saying they didn't like it, despite the fact that we asked them not to. But as it turns out, it was a pretty steady trickle of people saying, yeah, I like programming. It was fun. I like these topics. And only one or two people uh, broke the rules and wrote it and decided they didn't like it. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, this is not what the podcast is going to be about all the time. So I think we're going to take a break from that kind of topic for a while. But maybe later we'll circle back and we'll talk more about Dynamic languages and uh, and stuff like that. At least, at least we know that there are a handful of people out there to whom it would be interesting to hear about it. However, uh, it's it's not something we're going to do on a you know every other show or anything. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll keep it we'll keep it in mind for a future show. And if people want to send continue to send feedback on the topic or things they're interested in hearing about, you know, I'll file those away for the time you know several shows down the line we may circle back to this. Uh, one more thing on, on on programming that I do want to throw in there, on Perl specifically, uh, I mentioned Perl six regular expressions. Uh, I don't I don't think you're are you familiar with any Perl six stuff at all? Or you, you just know what you've like read in headlines on the That's internet. That's about it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. So so anyway, I, I the last show I'd said that Perl six regular expressions were sort of uh, to Perl five regular expressions as a complete lack of regular expressions was to Perl five, and how Perl five regular expressions were 
now you know spreading to every language and every utility and people were accepting them and finding them useful and at the same time Perl was moving on to Perl 6 regular expressions which is just a big leap over that and I was wondering if someday in the future that uh, people you know take a look at Perl 6 regular expressions start adopting those and I got some feedback from a few people about that and it occurred to me that if you just hear me say that and you don't know anything about Perl 6 you might be thinking that what I mean is that like they've added a bunch of new funny characters, you know, like instead of star, you've got, you know, star and then happy face or some other, you know, like, like Perl 6 regular expressions means new ways of writing uh, meta characters and regular expressions. And that's going to be powerful and interesting. And while that's sort of true, that's not really the point. Uh, the point of Perl 6 regular expressions is kind of like uh, formalizing regular expressions into things they call grammars. Like a grammar is like the equivalent of a class. And within the grammar, there are rules, which are like the equivalent of methods. So you can build, you know, essentially as a way to build a parser or a formal grammar for something in, in, a, in a structured type of way. So obviously the individual regular expressions themselves are different than Perl 5 regular expressions and have all these no powerful things or whatever. But the really powerful thing that I was getting at was this idea of structuring them in the same way that you use classes to, to structure behavior and data in, in regular programming language. So you can make a, a, a grammar for something complicated. And, and a good example is the Perl 6 syntax, which I don't think anyone would argue is completely extremely complicated, much more complicated than any other programming language. Well, the Perl 6 syntax is uh, designed and actually implemented to be parsed by a Perl 6 grammar. That's sort of like the torture test for, you know, is this grammar building thing we built actually useful well can we use it to parse perhaps the most complicated programming language <laughs> ever invented well yes we can and that would we be a good test yeah um so i put a few notes about that in the show notes links and people who are actually interested in this topic can find them and read them and have your mind explode i mean if you've never actually looked at Perl 6 it will probably be difficult to digest even like one percent of what's there but if you just you know scroll to the part about grammars and take a look at some of the code samples, don't even read any of the text, you'll get you get the gist of what they're getting at, and it will look to you kind of like either like pseudocode or like a specification document for something. But it's actual executable code, and that's kind of the point. Uh, it's very interesting. All right, um, now we start getting like out of the follow-up zone and into like the tidbits from the news thing. Mm. So I have three tidbits, and you can pick which one of these you want to talk about, or two of them. I don't think we'll have time for all three. Okay, should so, I be yeah. adding these to the show notes as we go, or if you're already no, you've I, already I'm on top of it. All right, yeah. good. Oh, already nice, nice change. Nice change? you kidding? I'm Not always from on you, top of from the show. my my other co-hosts. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, that's fair. Yes, they're a bunch of slackers. All right. So no the three that. items are... Uh, Apple and ARM. I don't know if you saw that rumor that was flying around today. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the rumor, the gist of the rumor is that as soon as possible, Apple is going to be moving away from Intel CPUs to ARM CPUs as quickly as possible into at, starting with the, all of their mobile uh, devices, including laptops, which I guess they consider mobile devices in some way, but specifically laptops and uh, notebook computers and then eventually everything. Right. Uh, second topic is uh, Mac gaming and boot camp and stuff. We talked a little yeah, bit about gotta this week. Yeah, got to get in because I already or- I ordered some stuff, so we can talk about that more. All right. And the final item I have is uh, SSDs, which I had mentioned that I was a little bit wary of, and there are some stories flying around about SSD reliability this week. So you want to do – which one of those do you want to do? do them, we got to do them all, and we got to do them in the order you rolled them out. All right. I'll try to fit it in. Let's go. See how accommodating I am? You, Jess, you know, you, might, you want to talk about all of them. You're I do. I really – I'm all of these. All right. Great so Apple and ARM. So you gave a good summary of uh, of the Apple ARM thing, and I was actually... Uh, what does ARM stand for? 
uh, Acorn Risk Machine? Anyone in the chat room know? Am I right? Am I am I guess? I don't want the chat room to help you. I want you to know. I gave my guess instantly. I said Acorn Risk Machine. They can tell <laughs> me if I'm right or wrong. Anyway, uh, so ARM is the the uh, instruction set of the CPUs that are used in iPhones, uh, iPads, and iPods, and they're uh, they're low power uh, CPUs uh, that that. Assume a little electricity, not as much electricity is as desktop parts, but they're also a lot slower. Um, and the, the yeah, someone someone put an Acorn Risk Machine. Yeah, they're right. saying you're right. So anyway, uh, the rumor I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even call it a rumor. I would just call it blatant speculation. Uh, when I put the link in the show notes, I didn't use the title of the link document because the title is like, uh, let me let me click on the thing. The title is emphatic. It, it's not phrased as speculation. It basically says. Apple's changing to ARM, done deal. Uh, but as far as I could tell from reading the article, it's mostly assertions without any real proof or support, just saying like, you know, we've heard, or I guess you could call it a rumor, I don't know. Uh, so we were discussing this in the, uh, with a couple of the people online about the two important aspects of Apple changing to ARM. And they are basically, could Apple do this? Would they do it? And why would they have any reason to? Uh, so I'll, I'll take them in that order. So could they do it? Could Apple take its laptop line mm-hmm. or any any part of its Mac line and put an ARM CPU in it? Uh, now, the the rumors are still like future. They're not like tomorrow you're going to buy an ARM CPU. They're saying coming down the road are going to be ARM CPU designs that trade power efficiency for uh, much greater performance. Uh, kind of like the A5 does. I don't know if that, how much more power the A5 uses than the A4, but presumably it's at least a little bit more. Uh, but the idea was that there would be ARM parts coming down the road from various manufacturers that would be much more powerful than current ARM parts, and they'd use just a little bit more energy, uh, and then you could put them in, in Mac laptops. And I guess uh, yeah, for feasibility purposes, it's conceivable that an ARM part that's due in a year or two or three could be as powerful as, say, like a, you know a Core 2 Duo was, which is not... You know, fast chip by these days of the you know the i5 and the i7. But right. we had Macs based on Core 2 Duos, and they weren't horrible, right? So you can imagine a MacBook Air with a Core 2 Duo in it, because we had MacBook Airs like that. Uh, I think we still do. I think it's the current CPU in the MacBook Air. But anyway, and then your only problem would be well, how to get my software to run on it. Well, we've seen Apple go through uh, CPU transitions before, and they pretty much have it down at this point. Like they have a compiler that can cross compile to all sorts of different architectures. They have an executable format where they can ch- pack different architectures in there at the same time. Same thing with all their libraries and everything. They've shown that they are able to make a very reliable and acceptably fast emulator for the old architecture, just like they did with PowerPC, 68K, uh, you know, all that business. So technology-wise and, and financially, uh, they could do this. It is within the realm of feasibility, not today, probably not tomorrow, but within the you know, semi-near future, year, two, or three uh, from now. Uh, so that's not an interesting question, I don't think, and I don't think anybody really debates like that it could be done, especially since they've done it so many times. Even the most casual observer realizes that it's a technical possibility. Right. Now, would they do it? What, and that gets wrapped up with the why. Like, what, what would be their motivation for doing this? Uh, and would would they would they find it compelling? So, I like to look at the Intel switch to figure this out. Um, Intel had been courting Apple for years and years, and uh, be, both before and after Jobs, to come back to say, "Hey, use our chips." So I don't know why you're using that PowerPC crap. You want to really want to use this Intel stuff? Blah blah. Uh, and eventually, 
after Jobs, some point after Jobs returned, uh, there, Apple was convinced. And Apple was convinced uh, because uh, Intel basically showed them, look, we've got this new line of CPUs. It was the core line of CPUs at right. that time, which had not yet been introduced. And uh, let's give you a demo. And they, well, I probably, they probably gave them the robot first. So these things are going to beat in, in price and performance and power usage anything that you even have promised from any of your other vendors. No one can match it. No PowerPC vendor can match what we're going to do. And then eventually they could actually show them, you know, prototype hardware and say, look, here's the CPU. This is how much power it's drawing. This is how powerful it is. This is what we're offering. And, you know, that will just go back to the PowerPC guys and say, do you have anything for us? Are you going to build us any CPUs? Are you going to be stuck with G5s forever? What the heck are we going to put in our laptops? What have you got for us? Right, and they had no good answer for them. Well, their answer was like, what? Hey, you think about using the cell? Because we're already paying billions of dollars to, to develop that for the PlayStation 3 and to develop it for our, our you know, own supercomputer things. And we'd love to leverage that R&D money to sell you the same CPU. So what do you think about the cell? And it was not, to use a bad pun, that was not an easy sell. And <laughs> Apple basically said, no, that's not, that's not useful for us. And the cell CPU, I don't know um, how much people know about it, but it's got... A little PowerPC core in there that was wimpy by the standards of the day, even, and then a whole bunch of uh, number crunching engines, which are more akin to tiny general purpose CPUs used for GPU type activity. It's not well suited to to a Mac type of applications. It's it's, it's arguably not well suited to a game console either, but it's at least much better <laughs> suited to that application than it would be in a Mac. Mm-hmm. So that was just a non-starter, and that was basically IBM's way of saying. We really don't want to put in the R&D money to make you an entirely new CPU like we did with the G5 because we don't feel like that was a good uh, deal for us. And, you know, I mean, to, for, to, to, in their defense, it probably wasn't. Right. And, and the same thing with, like, you know, uh, they were trying to sell uh, Apple stuff they already had. So they say, well, are you interested in the Power 4 or the Power 5, which were their big, stonking, ridiculous supercomputer CPUs that they, that they use for, you know, computers the size of refrigerators? that cost, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, we could give you that CPU, and it's like, no, it's going to melt a hole through the chassis of our <laughs> computers, and it costs too much money, and, you know, there's a million reasons why it doesn't work. And they said, well, we're, we're doing this cell thing for consumer electronics. Do you want that? And Apple's like, no, that's not what we want. We, we have desktops and laptops. We want a CPU that does this. What have you got for us? Intel had the better deal. So Jobs said, all right, F them. We're going, we're going to Intel. Uh, and that was... That was a pragmatic choice. It was, you know, the Steve Jobs of the modern era is is a lot more pragmatic than people give him credit for. You know, there's always he he'll never let, allow anything that spoils the beauty and elegance, and he's always been going on and on about power PCs. He's very pragmatic in his old age. And he basically said, "They've got the better product. We're going to go with it. I'm tired of the CPU stuff. I just don't want to have to worry about it anymore." Because when you go with Intel, that's what everyone else is using anyway, and you don't have to bug Intel every month. Hey, Intel, are you going to make a new desktop CPU? Of course, they're going to make a new desktop CPU. They're Intel. They're constantly doing that. And the laptop thing was the last piece of the puzzle because Intel had been making very power-hungry CPUs, and AMD was eating a little bit of their lunch at the top end, and they were trying to compete there, and they weren't going down to the low end. So the G4 was much better suited to a laptop than Intel's uh, uh, products at that time. But then they came out with the core line and said, no, we got this figured out. We're going to make parts that scale already up to, all the way up to the high end, but are also awesome and low power. And that's what they did, and Apple switched. Uh, now, when it comes time to switch again... Were you there at the WWDC that year when they announced that? I, was I at it? Yeah. No, I've never been to WWE. No, I was at that one. Yeah. It's one of the only one, one of the only one. I can't remember if I've been a one or two. I think I just was at that one. That's a good one to be it at. It was the best one to be at, in my opinion. I, if, if you couldn't have been at the iPhone uh, announcement. I've only been at one uh, actual Steve Jobs keynote, and it was a, it was a Macworld's keynote, like in person. 
in the actual room, not like an overflow room or something. Yeah. And the one I was at in person was the one where everybody got the apology mouse, which I think was one of the best uh, keynotes to go to. Because well, I don't, you, I don't know about that one. What, what do you mean the, the apology apolo- mouse? Yeah. You, you remember? You just don't know my name for it. Uh, the, remember the puck mouse with the iMac? Yes. And so, so when Apple. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and created a mouse that was not a perfect <laughs> circle, so you could tell which, which way it went. Uh, it was a look-under-your-seat keynote, oh, and there was a little right. voucher for a free Apple optical mouse, you know, the clear <laughs> thing with the little clicky solid button or whatever. Uh, I've still got that in, in the special packaging that says Macworld 2001. No kidding. Yeah, so you got a free mouse. No one's, getting, you know, no one's looking under the seat and finding iPhones at Macworld keynotes. not that they exist anymore. But anyway, getting back to ARM. So... If someone, including Apple itself, which is one of the theories that Apple itself would manufacture these, if someone wants to sell Apple on doing ARM, uh, they would have to present the same type of case that Intel did. They would have to demonstrate that they have uh, CPUs that are better than what they're being promised from Intel. Because Intel's promises at this point are, are pretty solid in Apple's book. And if Intel says... Here's our roadmap. In a couple of years, we're going to have CPUs that use this many watts of power and, the, and they're going to be uh, you know, this computationally uh, efficient and be able to do such and such. Uh, Apple's putting some good stock in that because they've delivered very well on, on their schedules. So uh, if they had switched to ARM and someone from ARM, well, this, you know, ARM is just a holding company that, that owns the license on the CPU architecture. So other companies license that the architecture and ARM doesn't actually manufacture CPUs. Other companies manufacture CPUs based on that instruction set. So if anybody wanted to manufacture an ARM CPU for Apple and try to say you should switch your entire line of computers or even part of your line of computers or any of your Macs or anything like that to ARM, they're going to have to say, show us that you can beat what Intel says they're going to give us in that same time frame. And I think they'd be extremely dubious about accepting their promises. I think they'd say, you know, show us some prototype silicon, prove to us that you can do this. And this us-them thing could be Apple internal because Apple does have a lot of chip people on staff, so it could be. Steve Jobs says, I don't want to have to rely on Intel for my CPUs anymore. Some team at Apple come up with an ARM chip that we can use. And that team at Apple would be challenged by the rest of Apple to say, well, you've got this task, so show us that you can build something that's going to be competitive with what Intel has. And the big, the, the big hurdle to overcome here is that Intel is the king of process. Uh, process in terms of uh, that's what they call the, the manufacturing process for the CPUs, basically how small can you make the features on the CPU? How do you build the transistors? What kind of facilities do you have? Was it them who just announced that, that 3D waivers. thing? The 3D? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, even without that, Intel has been the king of process for so long. They yeah. always have the best process sooner than everybody else. Their manufacturing yields seem to be great. You know what else they got? Hmm? They got the cleanest clean rooms. I'm sure they do. I've heard uh, but, that. You know, I'm, I'm not positive. They, it's just a rumor. The, the, the R&D that they do, like they're almost a whole generation ahead in some cases of their closest competitors in terms of process technology. And so this 3D transistor thing is just, you know, well, what else is new? Intel has some new process that is ahead of everybody else, you know. That, that just lets them make, you know, even smaller feature sizes with the potential to uh, improve at a greater rate than would be possible with traditional techniques. There's a whole article about the 3D transistor thing at, at uh, Ars Technica that I should put in the show notes uh, that, that explains this business. So anybody pitching an ARM thing, with the exception of Intel itself, which is, again, is another possibility. Anybody pitching ARM to Apple has to answer the question, that's great and all, you've got this design, but how the heck are you going to compete with Intel on process? They're going to be manufacturing like a 22 nanometer chip or something, you're going to try to sell me a 32? I don't care how great your chip is, you can't compete with a whole generation ahead of process technology. You know, that's, that's a, too big of a hurdle to overcome. So, 
it's tough for me to think of a scenario where someone with an ARM chip, whether it be Apple itself or anyone, could could make this tempting for Apple, except for perhaps Intel. Intel used to be uh, used to have an ARM license, and eventually they sold off all their ARM holdings. They could repent on that and give up on their Atom initiative what, and say we're going to manufacture ARM stuff again. Okay, so I mean, what would Apple gain though by this? What's the big win yeah. for Apple? So. So the whole idea behind all this, uh, I come at it from the other direction. The, the, the direction I, I come at it from is that taking, uh, they want to change software behavior to make lesser hardware feasible, right? So Apple's approach is to, on the software side of things, make the behavior of their operating system and applications such that they can get away with giving you a weaker CPU in their products. And this is exactly what they did with the iPhone. There's no way you could get Mac OS X to run in 128 megabytes of RAM on the wimpiest little uh, you know, ARM CPU that was in the original mm-hmm. iPhone. It yeah. just would never work. It, would, it wouldn't even boot. You couldn't, you know, wouldn't fit at all. So they made software changes to the OS and the apps to make this possible. They did stuff like, uh, there's no swap file. No, you know, there's virtual memory, but there's no swap file. So you're never swapping stuff out to disk when you run out of RAM. You get 128 megs of RAM, and when it runs out, tough luck. And all the applications have to be designed in a way for iOS have to be designed in a way that the OS can kill them at any time. So you get an out of memory, you get a low memory warning in your application when the OS is thinking about killing you. And if you can't, you know, clean up your ways and get rid of some memory, the OS is going to kill you flat out. And this from day one has been how iOS applications are designed. And they stripped out a whole bunch of other stuff from the operating system. And all this makes it feasible for you to run a Mac OS 10 based operating system with the GUI and 128 megs of RAM. And now, Obviously, the, the advantage of that for a phone is that you can have a phone because you don't, you don't have the option of putting a big honking Intel CPU inside a phone. It has to be small. You have to use that ARM CPU because it's the only thing you can put, you know, get any battery life out of and put in a handheld device. Right? But there are other advantages, too. If you think about the iPad, where things are scaled up a bit, um, the iPad could be sporting a much more powerful CPU than it does, but the low-power CPU gives it that big 10-hour battery life that everybody loves. And he could do the same thing on the Mac, where he said, well, why would I want to change the software on my Mac in such a way that I'm able to use ARM CPUs or any CPU that's much less powerful than what we have today or less powerful than it could be? And the advantages are obvious. You get you know, longer battery life, faster response time. Remember all the rumors about Steve Jobs saying, look at this iPad. Why can't a MacBook Air be like that? You know, Well, give it an SSD and... And like, why, you know, why is, why do these iOS devices feel more responsive than these ostensibly much more powerful Mac devices? It's because of the way the software is designed. And so by changing the Mac software, which they're, you know, going to be doing a lot of in line and seem to move in that direction, by changing the Mac software to make it more iOS-like, that allows you to use hardware that uses less power. And it also, at the same time, can make the hardware feel faster to the user. So Apple certainly wants cheaper parts, and they want parts that can make, especially in portables, they want parts that can make their battery life much longer. But they don't want their thing to feel slower. They want it, in fact, they want it to feel faster. So this is like a win-win scenario where you, if the customer thinks you, you're, they're getting a faster device, you're selling them something that's cheaper and that uses less power, so you, you get a longer battery life on it. So that's why Apple would be considering any kind of CPU that's not just like, give me the, the next most powerful thing, whether that be an ARM CPU or Intel's Atom CPU or any something from NVIDIA, any kind of CPU move in the portable line that's not just make it faster than the previous one. And I think that's the direction they're going with the portables, that they want to, to uh, you know, bring that iOS-like responsiveness to their portable line, and they want to do it while also giving battery li- better battery life, so getting off the treadmill of just give me the bigger, hotter CPU 
in the next generation of machine. All right. So I think that's all I have to say on the Apple ARM thing. Like at this point, it's just speculation. I think that it should be not Apple ARM, but Apple Wimpy CPU. And Apple Wimpy CPU, better battery life, faster experience for users. That, I, I don't think that's a rumor. I think that's, that's absolutely going to happen. Yeah. The rumor is, how do they get there? What is the wimpier CPU? Do they just keep using, you know, the same parts they've been using, but don't, you know, pursue faster runs all the time? Do they switch to ARM? Do they use an Atom CPU? Do they use something from NVIDIA? Uh, we're already seeing part of it, like the SSD only in the air. SSDs will sweep through the portables as fast as Apple feasibly can do that. And uh, there's a whole bunch more stuff in line, which I can't really talk about, but I'll talk about it in my review. Yeah, because you, you don't want to spoil that. You want to steal the thunder away from that. That's NDA, too. Yeah. All right, so before we go to the second topic, which is uh, about things like boot camp, playing games on the state of games on the Mac today, and that kind of thing. So I've got, I've got a lot of questions for you about that. Uh, we want to do our first sponsor. This episode is sponsored by WebTrends Analytics 10. This is very cool. This is an all-in-one analytics package. It, it includes things like mobile apps, social media, traditional website traffic, uh, and, and a whole lot more. They just came out with a brand new version. And let me explain something really quickly. This is not the go there and sign up for a free account and mess around with. This is a serious business tool. This is if you run a, a big website, if you're an iOS developer and you have uh, you know, a lot of downloads that you want to track, if you have a lot of traffic in general, this, the, this is a serious business tool. And, and what it really does is it pulls together detail from website traffic, marketing channels, uh, online campaigns, tons and tons of stuff. It puts it in context, it gives it to you on demand, and it, it helps you make decisions about what to do. For example, you can take uh, your RSS feed from your blog. You can overlay that with the Twitter stream. You can overlay that with your iOS sales, which it'll pull from there. You can overlay that with with Facebook, and you get all this data in real time that says, oh yeah, that ad that we did on Facebook combined with this blog post and this tweet increased our sales by X amount. And it's all in HTML5. It looks beautiful. It works perfectly on an iPad you can skip doing presentations and, and things and just use this instead of like a PowerPoint. It's amazing, uh, really elegant. If, if you're doing serious business on the web, if you're selling things and making things, you've got to check this out. And uh, by going to the website, you'll be supporting this show. Go to webtrends.com slash hypercritical and uh, go check it out. Thanks, Webtrends. Now, now we're talking about Basically, the games, and this is this is the the thing that came out. I don't remember you saying this, so John, maybe you did say this, but I don't remember it. At least not on the show. I feel like you told me outside of the show, so it doesn't really count. It didn't happen. Is that you? You're a big gamer. We know that, but that you're playing games on your Mac, booting up in Windows. You run Windows, and you not only Windows, you run Windows XP. Yep. So when you're sitting down. Uh, to play, let's say Portal Two, which just came out, which I want to talk to you about. Also, you're not you're you're on your Mac. You're on your Mac Pro, I'm guessing, but you're booted up through Basecamp, not Basecamp, Bootcamp. That's a, it's all the same, right? <laughs> Basecamp is a web app. Bootcamp is a thing. It's the same. You're you're coming up in Bootcamp with Windows XP, and that is how you play all of your games, all of your games. Is this true? 
I wouldn't say all of them, although before we get into this game thing, first of all, I think we're going to have to cross off the SSD thing because I do have a main topic today, you know, we're already past like the halfway mark, so I do want to go through this. Screw, screw your topic, we're going to talk sure. about SSD. Oh, I got, I got so many what's, notes in this. What's the topic? Topic is uh, TVs, TV tech. Well, that's kind of interesting. All right, it's well, then we'll, it's supposed we'll, to be a reward for the people who endured two shows of programming topics. All right, then we'll have to scrap SSD anyway. All right, so anyway, uh, gaming, yeah, so... Booting up and booting up in XP. I would prefer to play my games on the Mac, but the reason I so often find myself booting into XP, well, first of all, the reason it's XP is because I have a, a copy of XP from a, <laughs> a legitimate copy of XP from long ago. Uh, like I was telling you uh, offline, the I don't even think it's like Service Pack One. I think it's like the original Windows XP, and so I had to install it and then do Windows Update for seven years to try to get it up to a modern uh, level. Um, so, yeah, I have that on a separate hard drive, and I boot into it. And the reason I boot into it is because game performance in Windows, even ancient Windows XP, or maybe especially ancient Windows XP, Windows, people can tell me whether it, that is surprising or not surprising, is so tremendously, embarrassingly faster than in Mac OS X. Depressingly faster. Now, I, I, I was on a podcast with you and uh, Gabe Newell from Valve way back when. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was an episode of The Conversation uh, where... They had just, I guess they had had they had released or just announced Portal for uh, Steam and I think Portal it was the announcements. Yeah. They basically said Valve for years. Valve there was supposed to be a, a copy of Half Life for the Mac, and that project got ditched. And then Mac fans got really angry at Valve for many years. Uh, and there was you know there's a bad relationship there where it was like you were going to bring us Half Life and that's such a great game, but then you took <laughs> it away and now you're not. They said no, we're not interested in the Mac, so we were angry. So here was Valve. Coming back and saying, we're making a commitment to the Mac. We're going to bring all our games to the Mac. We're going to bring Steam to the Mac. We're going to just, you know, and that was what that, uh, that episode of the conversation was about. Talking to them about why, why did they decide to go for the Mac? What do they think of the Mac as a gaming platform? What do they think about Apple and stuff? Right. So, uh, and I think they, the Portal was one of the games they launched with, like the original Portal, which was a very old game. And I played the original Portal, and when I downloaded it, uh, it was a little bit slower than I thought it should be, so then I booted into Windows. And this is the great thing about Steam. I'm a big fan of steam boot into windows uh, install steam log in re-download the game super fast from their their servers that they pay for all around the world uh didn't have to pay for the game again got the windows copy basically for free uh and i don't know if it synchronized your saves but most of their modern games do synchronize the saves across platforms and tried it in windows and it was tremendously faster in windows and i was like well all right so this is their very first mac game i'm gonna cut valve a break they're trying to get out the door with something even though this is an old game it's a little bit slow but this is their first effort. I, you know, I'm not going to ding them for a game being slower. And so over the years since then, they've been releasing tons of games for the Mac. They, you know, they had the Orange Box for the Mac that was part of that launch lineup, I think, and Torchlight and a bunch of other games that they don't make, but they just distribute through their Steam uh, uh, front end. And at this point, I think we're how long was that? Was that a year ago for that conversation? A year and a half? Two years even? That I think it was two years. Seems like a long time ago. Yeah, it there? feels it feels like an eternity. One of the things we talked about was, uh, was Valve working with Apple. Like, so Valve's going to try to port their game, and they're going to find some sort of problem. Hey, Apple, you know, when we do this in OpenGL, this happens, and it's a bug, or this is slower than it should be. Can you help us? And a lot of that process before even the, the, the launch of Steam for the Mac was like, well, you need at least this version of the operating system because Apple fixed a bunch of OpenGL bugs, most of which we reported to them. 
And that's been happening. This, you know, that was 10.5 back then. Now we have 10.6. So uh, every major release of the operating system has come with a large amount of OpenGL fixes specifically for games. Sometimes you'll see them in Apple's release notes. And sometimes they'll attribute them directly to the company involved. But it's pretty clear that a lot of them are coming from people like Valve and Blizzard, who are really the only AAA game developers that develop for the Mac as, a, as an equal to the PC. And so you would think that a certain amount of time would pass that all the remaining problems in game performance have to do with Apple and not the game developers. My, my question, if I was going to have like a follow-up interview with Valve, which we will never get, but if we had one, I would say, is there anything you could do in Portal 2 or any uh, recently released Valve game to make it faster on the Mac? Like, do you feel like you've exhausted all possibilities? Maybe they would say, yes, there's stuff that we can do, but it would be cost prohibitive because not enough Mac people buy games. That, that's one possibility. That's a possibility a lot of people bring up. Like, well, they're just not trying hard enough. And that, that's like the, the mean version. Like, oh, they're mean to Mac users. They don't like us. But right. The, the we're ha- we're happy they, with our Windows users. We don't need, we don't right. need these Mac guys. But, but the reality is, like, you know, it's a, it's a return on investment. Like, we could make it faster by investing, you know, we could make it 1% faster by investing $10 million, but we're not going to recoup that because there's not enough Mac users, even if every single Mac user on Earth bought our product two times or something. Right. So this is just the, <laughs> the bean counter uh, rationale. I don't. I don't think that's the case. I think that at this point, there's there's essentially nothing left that Valve can do to make, for example, Portal Two faster on on a particular Mac. Maybe they could eke out a few frames per second here or there, but the difference is not like a few frames per second here. The difference is night and day between Mac and Windows XP. Like when I ran Portal Two, it looked so much better than Portal One, and it was going slow. I'm like, oh, I guess my video card is too old. You know, I'll have to get a new Mac to play this game the way it should be played because I don't like to turn the settings down. I like it to be. Full yeah, screen, max you know, it out. Full screen. 1920 by 1200. Give me, give me everything. Every slider turned up, and then so I tried to run it in the Mac, and like first of all, Mac settings it wasn't happening. It was like a slideshow. So then I'm cranking stuff down. Turn down the anti-aliasing. Turn off the anti-aliasing. Oh, does it help if I, now now I'm getting? All right, I have to shrink the window. I can't use my full you know 23 inch display. I got to try like a window within a window. Can I make it smaller? Is it getting faster? And it was still like hitching a little bit. I'm like, ah, oh, this is depressing. This game is just too much for my hardware. Then I booted into Windows, cranked everything up, and it was smooth as glass. I don't even know what the frame rate is because I don't know how in Portal in the console to bring up the frame rate. I didn't bother Googling it. I don't even care what the frame rate is. Whether it's 30 or 60 or 90 or 8,000, it was like, it was basically perfect. No stutters, no tearing, beautiful anti-aliasing, every, everything maxed up. And this is on, on uh, NVIDIA, what is it, 8800 GT or whatever my Mac has in it with like 512 uh, megs of RAM, the VRAM. Yeah. Man, I just couldn't believe it. And I'm like, okay, at this point, it's Apple's fault. So I, that's what I tweeted. I said, you know. Yeah, I saw that. Pressing the Portal 2 is slower. Come on, Apple. And everyone's like, come on, Apple. Apple didn't make Portal 2. It's not Apple's fault. I got to say, at this point, I have real trouble assigning any significant blame to Valve on why this is so much faster in Windows. You know? Because it's not like they're not trying. And it's not like they're not making money on the Mac. They, they dedicated themselves to the Mac, and they've made good. They're bringing games out for the Mac. They're bringing them out simultaneously. All the extras are there. It's synced between the things. They have, they're reporting bugs back to Apple. They're doing everything they can to make their games good on the Mac. The, the only other thing I think of is that because they're writing to DirectX, which I don't even know if that's the case, but a lot of people seem to think it is. They're writing all their games to DirectX. They have to have some sort of DirectX to OpenGL shim layer, and that's slowing them down. I suppose that's possible too, and that could be an example of, well, if we really wanted to make it faster on the Mac, we'd have to take out the shim layer and just write a, a, an OpenGL native version of the game, and that would be cost prohibitive. Maybe, but but seriously, man, does that does that account for like such a dramatic? So let me throw some, let me throw some back at you here, John. If 
let, forget the shim layer, forget this whole this whole concept of of is the game faster or not. If you if you're a t- a typical Mac user, I'm not talking about the people who listen to this show necessarily. And I'll, I'll, I'll just go so far as to say a typical person who's probably buying a, a game for the Mac, there's a fair chance that they're not a hardcore gamer. Because most hardcore gamers have PCs running Windows, then they're all tricked out. They've got the little neon lights and the water cooling and the, you know, it looks like something in, from a Batman movie or whatever, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's your hardcore gamer. They're not using Macs uh, to play games generally. Now, you're, you're in an interesting case because you love games, but you happen to play them on a Mac. You boot Windows. That's fine. But I'm talking about the normal person who's probably going to buy a copy of, let's say, Portal 2 for the Mac. They're probably not... Could this be an issue of the... the they're maybe not as picky as you. Like when I look at a TV, a lot of the time, like we just have, I don't even know what we have an led LCD TV. It's like a 46 inch TV. looks great to me, but there are people who would probably look at it and say, I can't believe you watch stuff on this. I mean, how can you not, how can you look at this? And like, for us, it looks great. I'm not that picky about it. I don't watch that much TV. So if the same thing is true for people playing games, if they, you know what? I play one game every six months. So I'll, yeah, this Portal 2, I look fast and fine for me. Worked on my Mac. I had fun playing it. You know, that they're not, they're not going to, they w- they don't have anything maybe even to compare it to. They wouldn't know any better. They wouldn't know that it should feel faster. They would say, oh, well, on, on my platform, I can't have all the sliders to the right. You know, uh, it's good enough. And maybe, maybe the Valve guys realize that. They realize that, that, Typically, Mac people are not hardcore gamers, and that this well, is see, now, good now enough. You took for them. a step too far. I was with you right up until that point because you're right that this doesn't matter for most people. And that the game Portal Two, I'm by no means saying oh you can't use the Mac for gaming. Portal Two runs perfectly fine on a modern Mac. In fact, you know, like if you if you don't have anything to compare it to, it's fine. Like it'll you, it will default to settings that are low enough that it will run acceptably on your computer, and you can always turn them down. Right, no problem at all. Like it is not Mac is not a you know an unacceptable gaming platform. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy Portal 2, which you should. It's an awesome game. This is just, speaking for me specifically, it's depressing to me that the platform has not advanced to the point where it can equal Windows in terms of gaming performance because this is a technical issue. It's like, you know, how, how would you feel if Photoshop was, you know, 50% faster on the Mac? Well, you know, as long as Photoshop goes faster, or on the PC rather, as long as Photoshop goes faster, fast enough for you on your Mac, you're fine with it. You don't care that if booting into Windows, it would be faster because it's too much of a hassle. But if you're the type of person or like maybe me... Maybe you don't even know that that's an option or you, that's not something right, you would right. consider. But, but if you're someone like me who's interested in the platform and interested in, in gaming and is a hardcore gamer, like even if you're... Some hardcore gamers have bought Macs just because they're really good PCs, even if you just run Windows on it. Like the hardware is good, it's it's reliable, and you could get decent video cards in it and stuff. Like, it's an acceptable PC gaming rig. It's not a fancy schmancy one with lights, but it's okay. But... You know, if you have this this gaming rig that you know should be capable of better performance, and it's falling down because of what you think is a problem with the OS, that's that's on Apple to fix that. And it's depressing to me that they haven't made progress because every release they're like, "Oh, we made, we did a lot of fixes to OpenGL. It's much faster now." You know, so I I, I keep watching that. Um, now, in that vein, there are rumors, and I can talk about these as rumors because I have no actual knowledge of it from anywhere, including the, the NDA line stuff. There are rumors. There was a rumor in the, the Ars Technica's piece about uh, uh, NVIDIA professional video card for people who do 3D and like Maya and stuff. Mm. The person who wrote that included some information about the Lion OpenGL stack is supposedly uh, rewritten. And uh, not rewritten 
rewritten in an interesting way in that there's the existing OpenGL stack, which is supposedly still there in Lion, and then there's the 3.x OpenGL stack. The current OpenGL version of Mac is like 2. something, which is way behind the current OpenGL standard. And so what Apple supposedly done in Lion is made a new OpenGL 3.0 stack, but put it off to the side and made it opt-in. So on an application-by-application basis, you can say, hey, I'd like to use the new fancy OpenGL 3.x stack because, you know, it has features or performance that I need. So they're leaving the 2.x one there for, like, stability for existing apps and stuff if you don't need that stuff. But then the 3.x stack is kind of like in the experimental phase. And the other thing I heard is that the OpenGL 3.x stack in Lion, or maybe it's even 4.x, but I I think it was just rumored to be, like, 3.2 or something, is only a core OpenGL stack. Uh, and that gets back to uh, one of the points that people, a lot of people bring up about why it's slower on the Mac. That on the Mac, the OS provides the OpenGL stack and the video card drivers, and Apple usually, I think, writes the video card drivers for its operating system, despite the fact that you know it's an NVIDIA or an a- ATI card. Right. Apple either writes them completely on its own or is heavily involved in writing them, and they do the whole OpenGL stack. And on Windows, video card vendors can give you their very own drivers and even their very own OpenGL stack. You know, distributed to you, shove onto your PC, and override whatever's there in the operating system. In fact, I don't even know if the operating system comes with an OpenGL stack anymore. Or if it does, certainly no one's uh, using it for their games. So the ability of the video card vendors to write their own drivers and OpenGL stuff on the PC lets them essentially cheat for games. Like uh, PC video drivers have always been filled with game-specific hacks. Like if you're, if we detect that you're currently running Doom 3, do X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z are like shortcuts that are in violation of the the OpenGL standard, but that don't cause any problems when you're running Doom 3, but they make the game like, you know, 10% faster. So you accumulate all sorts of these hacks together. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, PC video card drivers always uh, are always uh, competing with each other on who can run the, the latest game the fastest. And they're always way faster than the Mac because you can't get away with shortcuts like that when you're writing the generic OpenGL stack and video drivers that are used for every single application. But you can get away with them when you're able to, when a vendor is able to give you a special driver that, you know, detects whatever the hot new game is. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if, it, oh, so, so in line in the core OpenGL stack, the idea is that that Apple is going to only provide the core OpenGL functionality and the, and the extension stuff. It will be possible for application vendors to, either it'll be possible for them to override it or they'll have to provide code to do stuff with like the, the, the latest OpenGL extensions. Like they'll have to bring that code themselves to the table mm. and that will let them in theory tweak that code to be, you know, for example, specific, you know, cheats or hacks that make a Portal 2 much faster, the source engine much faster on the Mac. And those will only be in effect when you're running Portal 2 and won't be in effect on the rest of the operating system. This is all speculation, rumor, and I have nothing to support this other than what I read on the web. No inside information. We'll see if any of this comes to pass. Every major operating system that's come out of Apple recently has always had promises of increased gaming performance and, in fact, has delivered big increases in gaming performance. It just shows how incredibly far behind Apple was that even with all these big advances in 10.5 and especially in 10.6 with OpenGL and performance, it's still just so far behind even Windows XP. I, I don't know what the age of my video drivers are on Windows XP. Like, I just updated everything, and I'm using Apple's boot camp drivers, and I think I might have installed the NVIDIA drivers from NVIDIA site. I don't even know what I did in that Windows machine anymore. All I know is that that disgusting, ugly operating system, which I don't even like looking at it for the two seconds before I had to launch Steam and run my games, <laughs> just runs those games so much faster. That, that I mean, 
and nobody likes to reboot. I don't like to reboot into boot camp. I hate it. I got to close all my windows, turn everything off, you know, and then you got to reboot. It just takes forever to launch. I got to hear that horrible Windows startup chime and see that 640 by 480 Windows XP startup screen filling my 23-inch monitor. It's a horrible experience. And yet, if I'm going to be playing a game for an hour, I'm going to take the hit of that, you know, 5, 10-minute, 15-minute reboot, close everything cycle because the experience is just so much better. And now before, before we get an onslaught of email about it, John is, and we have talked about this offline, John is aware of the fact that I think it's perhaps VMware or something else that will allow you to run your boot camp image, not image, but your, the actual use the partition itself, the boot camp partition as an image to use as a virtual machine as opposed to rebooting. John knows that. John does not yeah. do that. John does not yeah, trust I, I tried it. I tried running these games in VMware just as a curiosity, uh, but it's usually slower than running the Mac native versions, which is pretty darn slow. Yeah. And I was saying in IM, it's amazing that it works at all, but it's not really a viable choice for me. If there was like a PC-only game that I wanted to play and that it wasn't performance critical, I could imagine doing that. But no, if I'm going to do Windows, I'm going to do it whole hog, reboot into it, because that's why I'm rebooting into it. I want the performance. So the fact that I can do it from a VM is technically interesting, but not practically useful to me. Well, I, I uh, as you know, I ordered a new Mac. For the people who don't know what I decided, and we talked about this, but I'll, I'll share it briefly with them now. I got the 15-inch MacBook Pro uh, with the high-res screen, which I went to an Apple store to see in person. Anti-glare screen, that's also known as a matte screen. 8 gigs of RAM. It's a 2.2 gigahertz one, by the way. I opted for the 7200 RPM drive. There are a lot of people who were hitting me up on Twitter or email explaining uh, how great an SSD drive is and, and that I should get one. I have one. I've been running one in, in a MacBook here for a while, so I, I know all about it. And as soon as they're, the bigger ones are a little bit more affordable, I'll be putting one in. But I decided to opt for the 7200 one since I'll be using it for recording and could use the extra speed. And uh, what else am I forgetting about that? That's it. That's the machine, right? Sounds so, good to me. So I got a uh, I got a copy of Windows Seven for this to put on this because I I too like you for the I don't play anywhere near as many. I mean you're on that you're on that machine like you know hulking over it playing games all the time. I don't I don't do that. I probably you know, maybe two games a year, three games a year. But I'm with you when it, when you do it, they're just they're better on they're better, they're just better. There's everything about it is better. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. So I've got a I've given Microsoft you know a hundred bucks. That's the most I've ever I've given Microsoft in the last decade. It's the one Microsoft software package I I own, and I felt ter- terrible doing it. Yeah, I'm dreading the day when uh, when the ga- hot new game I want to play won't launch in Windows XP. You know, I'll have to buy Windows 7 too. Yeah. Be a sad day. Hopefully by then, Apple will have caught up maybe. Maybe. You can hope. Yeah. So before we go into our, uh, I guess our main topic, yeah, now that we're 45 yeah. minutes into it, right. let's do our second sponsor. It's actually, this This is a MailChimp thing. I don't know what, the, a joint, MailChimp joint? Is that what the kids say? Well, let me tell you what this is. This is Alter Ego. You got to go to Alter Ego app. Basically, this is, I love this idea. Basically, it's two, you can add two-factor security to your web app. 
Alter Ego adds an extra layer of security uh, that basically helps thwart phishing attacks and breaches that are caused by insecure passwords. So it generates a temporary auth code. It's only accessible on the user's mobile device, and it makes it required for entry into the website. So even if passwords are compromised, Alter Ego will block account access unless the user has the temporary auth code. Uh, it's backed by MailChimp, and uh, it's an open API. Developers can roll it into their own app. It's all free and very little time required to do it. They're amazing API documents. But this is, I mean, this is a reality. Two-factor security. If you're serious about securing your app for whatever reason, uh, this, is, this is the thing to check out. And again, it's free. So go to alteregoapp.com. We'll have it in the show notes. Thanks again to MailChimp for being awesome. I'd record you a rock opera, but it's really not in my wheelhouse. That's too That's too bad. I would love to hear you sing. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I think everybody in the audience would. It'd be pretty cool. I mean, as it is, as a reference point, we have It's Not Easy Being Green. Yeah, well, I got songs about rainbows, you yeah. know, the whole, the whole repertoire I could do. <laughs> All right, and now, 45 minutes in, 48 minutes in. Yeah, your fault, but... You know, this this is supposed to be the reward for people who suffered through two shows about programming. Now we're going to talk about TVs. All you know, right. TVs, right? TVs. I have a TV. As mainstream as you can get. Yeah. Or yeah. the people who don't have TVs can just... Uh, they can turn it off. They've yeah. heard the second spot. They can turn it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So... You have uh, TVs, right? How many do you yeah. have? You have like so five TiVos. No, I got two TiVos. Two TiVos. I only, only, usually we only have the two TVs, but like one main TV and then like the auxiliary TV. It's always been that setup. What kind of so, TV are you running? So be, I'm going to take you through my history of TVs, which will be a way into describing this. this I, the usefulness of this segment, I think, will be if you're thinking about buying a TV, this will tell you what you need to know about the TV landscape uh, and why it kind of stinks. Uh, now, I had a TV. I bought a TV when I was married way back when. It was a Sony Trinitron uh, not their top-of-the-line thing, but just like a middle-of-the-road Trinitron. I knew I wanted a Trinitron because Mac monitors were all Trinitrons, so that had taught me the the advantages of a Trinitron. Well, first of all, the screen is only curved in one direction, and the, the images are sharper. And, you know, if you, if you were a Mac guy back in the late 80s, early 90s, you knew about Trinitron. So that was the TV I was going to get. And I bought that TV. I think it was cheap. It was like 600 bucks or something like that, which is relatively cheap for a big honking TV. And I had that TV for just years and years, well into the 2000s. Uh, and the only reason I replaced it was because a friend of mine was uh, replacing his uh, television with an HDTV. This was like 2007-ish, something like that. So every, lots of people had HDTVs. And you think me as an early adopter, I'd have an HDTV. But here I am like 2007-ish, and I still have this CRT from when I was married. And it was, you know, getting kind of old and creaky, and it certainly wasn't HD. But I was like, I'm not buying an HDTV because HD, because the, the television technologies that are out there for HDTVs all suck right now. And I'll get to those in a second, but that was, that was my reasoning. So my friend of mine had a television that he wanted to get rid of because he was going to take the HDTV plunge, and he sold me his old television for like 100 bucks, which was quite a steal because it was like a $1,000 TV or $2,000 TV, something like that. The only problem with it was that it was a 37-inch, was, was 40-inch. It was something in that range. It was like well over 30-inch Sony CRT. Now, I don't know how many people have ever seen a CRT that big, let alone tried to lift one. Very, very heavy. It was like 350 pounds, maybe close to 400. It was... Isn't that crazy that they were, make, they were making things that had 100 pounds worth of glass in them? 
Yeah, no, easily. This must have had multiple hundreds. But it was just massive, and the, the, so it was a it was a bargain. But the bad part was that I had to carry it out of his basement. Oh man! So it was like me and my brother with like those lifting straps. That it's you almost see not in, worth it. Like those nylon straps that you put over like your shoulders and <laughs> yeah. stuff, up this narrow staircase. Like getting that television <laughs> to my house. That was, that's the largest thing I've ever moved in my life, I believe. And we did it without breaking it, which was which was quite a feat. So I had that in my house. I had to buy a special stand for it too, because you can't just put it on top of like your little TV right. stand, crush right. it. In. So I had to find one that was rated for the weight. Um, and I used that for many years too, but I wanted an HDTV because who wants to be looking at this non HDTV? Like, you know, I'm, I'm the guy with the whizzy new Mac and I always have like the, you know, the latest gadget iPhone accepted, but I did have iPod touches and stuff like that. And here I am staring at a four by three CRT and it was getting kind of annoying. Yeah. Uh, and here's why I was staying away here. Here's sort of the overview of television technologies at the time that was keeping me away. So, uh, We've got CRTs, which I'm not going to discuss any further, but it's basically just like a big glass light bulb. Uh, that's why they were so heavy, because of the, the thick glass inside them. And there was electron beams in the back of the, the light bulb harp, and they painted the inside of the screen with, uh, with electron beams, and the electrons hit these little phosphors, and the phosphors glowed, and you got your picture. Uh, it had a lot of things to recommend it, but it was clearly not the future. HETVs, no one wanted to have a 300-pound thing in their house. And that was only for, you know, a 40-inch max TV. You couldn't make CRTs above a certain size because it was just the structural integrity of glass was such that they would collapse into their own weight like a, excuse me, like a beached whale. So, <laughs> <laughs> so forget about CRT. So what else did I have a choice of? Well, we had plasma displays, which was the big, you know, HDTV, the first wave of HDTVs, everyone was getting plasmas, right? The flat flat displays. Once they're flat, you can make them a lot bigger. You don't have this big CRT depth issue and the weight issue. Uh, and I'm not going to go into too much detail about how these work, but I, people should have some kind of knowledge of it. You can look at the Wikipedia pages that I linked in the show notes to more information to get more information. But basically, plasma was like two sheets of glass with little tiny cells in between. And uh, inside the cells, there was like a couple of little elements and some gas in there. And by applying electricity to the cells, they would uh, excite these electrons that would shoot from the back of the cell to the front, and, and the little electrons would hit phosphors painted on the inside of the cells, which would remind you of CRTs, and those phosphors would glow different colors uh, because they use different kind of phosphors to coat the inside of the glass. So what it basically was was like hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of tiny little CRTs, like miniature CRTs, because you got an electron that's excited by electricity, fires from the back to the front, hits the phosphors, the phosphors glow. So it had very similar characteristics to CRTs because the picture was, uh, you know, made in a similar way. Uh, and then you had uh, LCDs, which came a little bit later in like the second wave of HDTV. You know, plasma was the first one and LCDs were the new thing. So we all know what LCDs are because we look at them. Probably, you're probably looking at one right now if you're uh, staring at your computer screen. It's some sort of light source. Uh, it's all, they're also flat. So some sort of flat light source shining through uh, a series of uh, you know, a, a grid of pixels where there are filters for the red, green, and blue colors, and electricity can allow different amounts of light through the red, green, and blue elements. It's the same thing as in, in the CRTs and the plasma TV. They all have like little pixels made of red, green, or blue elements. Although on CRTs and plasmas, the pixels are not necessarily uh, little rectangles like they are on, uh, on LCDs. John, is the is the LCD screen still the most exp- or one of the most expensive components in a computer these days? Uh, like I, in a laptop, for example. I have to think that it is, although yeah. I have to. I also wonder, like on Apple's things, where they machine them out of aluminum. If, like, in the initial run of those machines, does the case compete with the screen to mm. be for the most expensive element, just because the labor involved in the raw materials of the block of aluminum? But, but anyway, yeah, they're, they're expensive, and that was the case then too. That LCDs were just starting to compete with plasma, but they were smaller. 
uh, and they tended to be more expensive for, for the same size. Now, here, here were the problems with all those things. Why wasn't I going to buy an HDTV? Well, if those are my options, why aren't I buying them all? Forget about CRT. That's not an option at all, even though they did make CRT HDTVs. But I was like, that's X off the list. It's obviously a dead technology. Plasmas. Here's the problem with plasmas. Lots of power. They use lots of power, so your electricity bill will go up. They use lots of heat, which is not great in the summertime, especially if you don't have air conditioning. Uh, but the real big issues were uh, burn-in. Uh, people who have CRTs or remember CRTs remember burn-in. That's why the screensaver supposedly came into existence. If you leave the same image on a CRT for a long time, what happens is that the, is that the phosphors that are in, you know, inside the screen, the electrons are hitting, eventually the phosphors overheat, and they lose a little bit of their ability to emit light. And so they're a little bit dimmer. And the other thing is that they, it changes the color of them slightly, too. So when you turn the thing off, you can still see the image of the, of the thing that was previously there. You used to see this in, like, sports bars where they would have, like, the, uh, some sort of ticker or news ticker or something right. at the bottom of, of a CRT. And they'd turn the television off, no power going to it at all, and you could still see the ticker on the screen because those <laughs> phosphors had been so overheated because they're constantly been on you know, bright white or blue or whatever, you know, 100% saturation on those colors in the same spot for such a long time that those phosphors were losing their ability to emit light and also changing the color of them so you could still see the image when it was off. And there's no way to fix that in a color CRT. Like, once that happens, you just got burning and it's permanent. And it would be really annoying because if that was a dark region of the screen, you'd still see the sort of the dim shadow of the, of the ticker that used to be there. Uh, and the other problem was image retention, which is different than burn-in. Burn-in is irreversible. It, you've damaged the phosphors and you're... Th and you're you're, uh, you're set because of uh, overheating. Image retention is when even after you stop firing electrons at those phosphors, some charge remains and the image that used to be there is still faintly glowing, sort of. And that same thing, it's, the cause is the same. The, the image was there for a long period of time and even when you stop the, the flow of electrons there, they still retain some charge and you see a little bit of, a, of, of the image that used to be there. Uh, this type of thing will actually correct itself over time. Like if you just turn the TV off and leave it alone for a while, eventually that charge will dissipate and you won't have a problem. So it's different than burning where you've actually, where heat has actually damaged the phosphors. So it's keeping me, as you can imagine, it's keeping someone as anal retentive as me away from plasmas. Uh, LCDs have their own set of problems, which I knew from my experience in computers. Uh, one of them that bothered me on computers immensely but didn't bother me on TV was the dead pixel issue. <laughs> I hated the fact that to be able to make LCDs as cheap as they were, they had to accept some number of dead pixels. Do you remember those days? Yeah, and I, I was going to ask you, when was the last time you remember seeing a dead pixel on any on I, any of your devices? I stopped looking for them because they drove me insane. Yeah, but I mean, uh, some but, things but yeah, they've gotten, they've gotten a lot better. But in the early days, like whatever the rule was, they would say like, well, if you have two dead pixels within two inches of each other, we'll replace your screen. But otherwise, you're out of luck and we accept up to seven dead pixels and it's just acceptable and you got to eat it. So you'd, you'd spend like $2,000 on like the original Apple 23-inch cinema display. Right. And you'd get it and it'd be like three dead pixels dead center on the screen. Yeah. And they'd all be far enough away from each other that you couldn't replace it. And you'd be like, I spent all this money. Why is there a red pixel staring at me? And like, you know, you'd have a white window there constantly or that'd be where your buddy list is. For you. I, oh, <laughs> I didn't want to think about it. Uh, but for TVs, that doesn't really matter. Um, and that, that's gotten better in time. But the things that do matter on television are things that, that are true on computer screens, but uh, less of an issue. Uh, one of them is ghosting. The original LCDs on computers always had a problem with ghosting, where if you had like a white square and the white square moved really quickly to the left, you would see the white square kind of lingering where it used to be right. for a little bit longer than you thought it should. So if you, for example, took that white square and moved it around with the mouse, you'd see like a ghost trail of white squares behind it. You can see that on screensavers, even on the, on the, speaking of the Apple cinema display, on the first Apple 23-inch cinema display, if you turn it on the screensaver that like bounced a 3D shape around, 
it was, it was like motion blur. You saw this faint trail of the, of the, the little <laughs> thing that's bouncing around following behind it. Because basically when, the, when the, the display, when the computer said, all right, turn off those pixels, they're black again, it would take some time for those pixels that used to be you know, red or green or whatever to fade all the way to black. Uh, and this, this was a tough problem for the LCD people to, to solve. because they, they would they'd try to have ratings for this. They call it the response time for how long does it take for a pixel to transition from one state to another. And one of the response times they would use is the black-white-black time. It's like, how long does it take to take a black pixel, turn it all the way white, and turn it all the way back black? How long does it take for the pixel to finally get back to the black state after going through those transitions? And the typical response times, I got this from Wikipedia or something, like 8 to 16 milliseconds to go black, white, black. Uh, and then the response times to going from one type of gray to another color of gray were like 2 to 6 milliseconds, according to Wikipedia. And the weird thing about this, I just give those two numbers, because the weird thing about them is that, well, what difference does it make what color you're changing to or from? Like... Isn't it just like a nature, the nature of the display if I you know, turn it on or turn it off? In fact, it actually matters the exact beginning point and end point of your colors uh, for the response time of the spread. Like how long does it take for that image to dissipate? And there's this whole class of, of techniques called response time compensation, compensation or RTC techniques that the monitors do that you just don't even want to know about. But I'll tell you about a few of them now that they're doing behind the scenes. So, so some smart person originally figured out that if you have a black pixel, if you have a white pixel and someone says turn it to black, if you just turn it to black, you get that ghost there for a little bit longer than, than you'd want it to be there. But if you, instead of going to black, you turn it to some particular gray and then go from that gray back up to white and then go from that white back down to the target color, it's actually faster. And so they came up with this huge mapping table of like if you're in state A, to get to state B, go through, go through intermediate state A prime. And they, <laughs> they built these tables, they built these tables into the displays and there's millions of different techniques for, for trying to do this of like one of them is called overdriving where you give more voltage than the pixel supposed to have like more voltage past white and then you crank it down there's some dis- uh, displays that will insert black frames between your actual frames in the refresh to try to give the pixels time to reset there's ones that use those complicated tables of transitioning from one color to another uh, it's really not color because each each individual pixel is driven this way so you can think of it as shades of gray because the, the green pixel is just going through a green filter and it's really like 100% on 100% off or somewhere in between or overdriven uh, so they use this to make the displays to, to where they are now, where ghosting is not the, an issue you can really see on most displays. You can, if you really squint, you can you can detect a little bit of ghosting, but it's not that big of a deal. But back then it was, and you, because you can't on on a on a monitor, ghosting is probably not that big a deal unless you're playing a game. But on TV, things are moving all the time, and ghosting was just distracting and horrible. Uh, and the other big problem the LCDs had was viewing angle, and this was a problem on on uh, computer monitors for a while too, where if you're looking right at the screen like you're the user, it's fine. But if you start going off axis or you're looking over someone's shoulder or standing above them, the screen would look dimmer or the colors would change. You'd still see that on, on a crappy laptop uh, displays on like the MacBooks, even from just a year or two ago, where they'd use the cheap uh, displays that don't have a good viewing angle. And if you looked at them from above, the colors would shift or they would get dimmer. Yeah, that's my current that's, Mac right there. Yeah, you can, you can do it right now. Just stand up and yep. look at the colors on your... Yeah, that's it looks right. horrible. So you can't have that on a TV because you're not a monitor you're sitting right in front of. But a TV, you know, people are all on the couch and spread out. And you need to have a, a reasonable viewing angle. Getting dimmer is one thing, but color shifting is even worse. Um, and the reason for this is that the light that's behind the LCD display goes through a bunch of polarization filters that ends up only allowing the light that's going in a single direction, more or less, to come out of it. And so light that's coming in a single direction, if you're off axis from that direction, it's not going into your eyes. Like a CRT or, or a plasma 
where electrons are exciting the phosphor and the phosphor is emitting light, the, the light is emitted in a diffuse pattern or generally diffuse pattern. So that no matter where you're sitting, you have some light coming to you. But if it's only coming straight out of the screen and you're off axis, you're missing a lot of that light. Uh, so the, what computer monitors have done and what a bunch of other things have done is try to find a way to scatter that light as it exits the screen so that if you, even if you're off axis, it still uh, looks good. And of course, you, you crank up the backlight, it helps. Uh, helps the display have more light to scatter. They used to use all sorts of diffusion filters on the front end, and there's a bunch of other technologies they use in changing the way they build the screens to make it so that the viewing angle is better. But that's why I didn't want an HDTV, because these were my choices, and I just listed all those horrible things about it, and compared to a CRT, CRT didn't have any of these problems. Burn-in on CRTs, yeah, it was a problem, but um, you know, I already have a CRT, and it cost me 100 bucks, and you know, <laughs> I'm not planning on... Uh, it, it, I know how to deal with burn from having CRTs for years and years, and if my $100 TV dies, so what? But I'm not buying a $2,000 one. And plasmas ran way hotter than, than regular TVs, so the chances of burning were much higher because heat is the enemy here. So, you know, I had, I had a mature CRT. This was like the last CRT in the line. They'd been making CRTs for decades. They knew how to do it. And these were the first plasmas, and they had all these problems. And LCDs, I saw how bad they were on the desktop, and those were small screens. I want like a big honking TV, and, and for a while, nobody was making, you know, LCD TVs that are bigger than 40 inches, you know. It took them a while to crank up that level because making an LCD that big was just you know outside the realm of their manufacturing abilities. And then you had the, the ghosting and all the viewing angles and everything. So what happened around 2008-ish was that they started to improve LCDs in the television realm. So the monitors got better too, and they, they brought those advances to the television. So I already mentioned the light scattering and everything. So they figured out how to make the viewing angles better by doing the same light scattering stuff they're doing on the, the desktop displays. Uh, just like on desktop displays, they added LED backlights. So it's still an LCD display, but instead of uh, what's called cold cathode fluorescent lamps in the back, it's like really skinny fluorescent light bulbs, you can think of it, because they're flat, to, to emit the light, they would use LEDs. Uh, and they have the advantage that LEDs are much brighter, and there's no warm-up times. Like the cold cathodes would take a little while to warm up. Uh, if you had an older LCD monitor on your Mac or something, or even on a laptop, before they were LED backlit on Macs, when you first open the lid, it would seem a little dim, and they would warm up and get a little bit brighter. So uh, televisions did the same thing. They, they started swapping out their, their occult cathode backlights for LED backlights. Uh, and the other thing that they started to add to, to the LCD televisions is dynamic backlights. And this is important because on an LCD display, when the pixel is off, like it's supposedly, you know, don't let any light through. Some light does come through. Like the off state of, of each individual pixel on an LCD display was not completely black. Far from it. In fact, if you put just a complete black square on an LCD display, computer display, TV, whatever, then turn off all the lights in the room at night and look at the display, it's like a big glowing rectangle. It's like a, practically like a flashlight lighting up the room. And you're like, wait a second, isn't this supposed to be black? This is what's known as black level. Like what is your black level like? Nobody's black level is perfect. A perfect black level would be, you know, once you turn off all the lights, you can't see a thing because no light is coming out of the television screen because you, it's set to black. That, that would be ideal. But LCDs were very, very bad in this regard. They had a huge amount of light leak through. So dynamic backlight was a solution to this. So what they would do is they would take the light that's behind the LCD display and break it up into a bunch of pieces. They wouldn't do it as like one pixel size pieces, but they would do pieces that are like two inches by two inches square or four inches by four inches square. Break it up into a grid of chunks, more or less. And they would control each of those chunks of the backlight independently. So, for example, if the, you're looking at a scene where the sky, uh, there's like a, a dark sky and, a, and a, a light, you know, ground on the bottom, they would turn the backlights down on the top half of the display to let less light leak through, and they'd turn the backlights up on the bottom half of the display. 
uh, that's a way of improving your black level, saying, look, we know we can't keep all the light of the backlight from shining through, but when we know there's a dark region in the, in the current frame of the picture, we will try to turn down the backlight that's, that's behind it. Obviously, it's not perfect because the grid is not the same as the pixel grid, so you can't do pixel accurate. You know, for example, if you had a night sky with stars in it, you can't turn off the backlights to the night sky because then your stars wouldn't show up. So you just try to turn on those chunky little regions behind where the stars are, but don't. But have it completely off in the other regions. Um, and the, the other thing it did was added colored backlights. A couple of manufacturers did this. Instead of just having white LEDs behind the screen, LEDs come in colors, unlike code cathodes. So what they would do is use red, green, and blue LEDs as the backlight. And that would give you a larger color range. Instead of just shining white light through colored filters where it would kind of look washed out or whatever, using the colored LEDs behind there, they could add, if you're, you're supposed to show a red region, red region, they'd show red light through a red filter and it would be super duper red. It gives you a larger range of colors to choose from. So when I saw all that, I'm like, all right, LCD television, this, this seems to be the way to go. Plasma, everyone knows they're hot and ugly and, you know, they have all these burning issues. And LCDs were kind of crappy, but it looks like they're figuring out the problems. They're applying technology to the situation and they're going to, they're gonna, you know, make a, a good television. And I started buying magazines, you know, in a run up to me buying HGTV. Let me learn about TVs. Let me see what the models are. And all the magazines were saying, you know, here's the latest model of LCD and look how awesome this is. And look at these amazing black levels and, and you know. These are things that no LCD has ever been capable of. And look, they're coming in bigger sizes and, and you know, stuff like that. And they're also the, the most expensive TVs. So I said, well, you know, I'm going to get a new TV and I want to get an awesome TV. So obviously the most expensive one is the best one, right? So I, that's what I was thinking I was going to do. So I started doing some research and I came up with a few more <laughs> LCD problems lurking under the covers. But I was still determined to buy an HDTV, but these things were giving me pause. Uh, so one of them is called the soap opera effect. You as, yeah. a, as oh, a, yeah. a television dilettante, you've heard of this? Oh, yeah. Do, do, all right, so you've heard of it? Can, have you seen it, or do you just know it exists? I saw you, it when I, if we're talking about the same thing, um, I saw it when we bought mine because my Samsung TV, which I bought, I guess, a year or so ago, to sometime in the last year maybe, it came default, defaulted with it on. Unless we're talking about something different. You know, you got the right thing. So, and so I turn, of opera, course, I turned it. I freaked out. I said, "How come everybody looks <laughs> like they're on a tiny little stage in in my living room and doesn't look right? I want something that looks film quality. I don't want something that I, I don't want to see everybody's makeup. You know, I, I just want to watch a television program and have it look. So, so this is, this like is an interesting. This is more of a psychological issue. It's terrible. Technical one, and a psychological and cultural issue. And they don't even tell you that it's turned on, John. That doesn't make it, it's not a turned on thing. It doesn't make it any less real. So here's this explanation, again, is from Wikipedia, and it's a good explanation. Well, I turned, well, maybe we're talking about something else, because I no, turned. You got it. Just listen to the explanation, and it will become clear to you. So LCDs have a higher refresh rate than the source material you're watching. The refresh rate is how often does the, the, the image, new image get painted on the screen. So when something, when source material is going to be like film or video or something. A film is like 24 frames per second, maybe 30. Same thing with video around that range. That's the source material. We have one picture, and then 1 24th of a second later, we have a different picture. And then 1 24th of a second later, we have a different picture. But the, the refresh rate of LCDs is much higher than that, like 120 hertz, 60 hertz minimum, but 120 hertz up to 240 hertz. That means these displays, they want a new picture to paint on the screen 120 times a second or 240 times a second. But the source material says, well... I don't have a different picture for you until one twenty-fourth of a second later. So I don't know what you're going to draw until I'm ready with the next frame. And one of the choices they can do is, all right, well, I'm just going to draw the same frame you sent me before, 
until you're ready to send me a new one. So they would draw frame number one 70 times or 100 times or whatever. And then they would draw frame number two 100 times. And they would draw frame number three 100 times, which seems like it should work just fine, right? But it doesn't in practice because the refresh rate of uh, CRTs, it's actually kind of complicated. CRTs usually draw every other line uh, and then they draw the other lines. So they would, the refresh rate for CRTs was 60 hertz, but they would draw the odd lines and then they would draw the even lines. So the effective frame rate was like 30 frames per second. That was much closer match to film quality. But what it basically meant was that they were, anytime they drew a pixel on a CRT, the light from that pixel would come to your eyes and then one thirtieth of a second later, a different light would come on that region. And then one thirtieth of a second later, a different light would come on that region. So it was close to the source frame rate and it generally looked right. When you draw the same frame dozens or hundreds of times, then you draw a different one. You, that light is lit the entire time. It's not like draw it and then slowly fades and draw it and then slowly fades. Or like, you know, think about projecting light through a projector in the movie theater. You shine light through the frames flying in front of the, the lamp and you see, and there's a shutter on it, you see one frame and then that fades and the next frame and then that fades. And, it, you know, it happens very quickly. So it seems like a continuous image, but really it's a series of images. If you were to film it with a high-speed camera, you would see, you know, for example, if you film a television set with a high-speed camera, you could see like the frames being drawn. Uh, so if you show the same frame... That means frame number one is constantly visible right up to the second at frame number two at full brightness. It's constantly visible right up to the second frame number two appears. And the, the name for that effect is called judder, where it looks jumpy to you. You're like, well, why is it jumpy? It's the same number of frames as you had before. Because there's no gap between frame one and frame two, because frame one is continuously on the screen right up until frame two comes, it looks, it looks jumpy. Your, your brain perceives it as a bigger jump. It's the same jump that it always was, but when you saw a series of images, your brain would stitch them together and sort of interpolate the in-between frames for you. Say, so, oh, I saw an image, then it was dark for about 1 24th of a second, then a second image came. So it must have been that that guy moved from there to there. So even though if I didn't see these steps in between, I'm going to, my brain's going to accept it and it's going to interpret it as... Right, it just as, takes right. that away. Yeah. So if you show the same image all the time, it looks jerky and right. looks juddery. So... What the LCD manufacturer said is, all right, so that, that's not good. We know, if we, show, we know if we keep showing the same frame, it, everything looks jerky and jumpy and people won't buy our TVs. So what we're going to do, and this is where the bad stuff comes in, what we're going to do is we're going to interpolate the difference between frame one and frame two and show you a series of images that are like in between these steps from step one to step two. So, you know, you can see lots of image programs can do this, you know, like our morphing. Take an image of a cat and an image of a girl and figure out what the in-between images would be for a cat <laughs> to change into a girl. This is two frames happening, you know, one one twenty-fourth of a second in uh, between. But if you have hundreds of frames to fill there, they would interpolate the 120 different steps between frame one and frame two and draw them in between instead of drawing frame one constantly. Now, now that sounds like a good idea, except that... <laughs> it can make it look like, in its best, in the best case, it can make it look like the material was recorded at a higher frame rate. You're like, well, isn't that what I want? Like, if, if, the, if the TV screen is drawing 100, 120 hertz, don't I want to see 120 different seconds? It'll look like it was recorded with 120 frames per second camera. Isn't that awesome? Well, as it turns out, culturally speaking, films, which are like high art that we all love, are filmed at 24 frames per second. But Cheap television shows were not shot on film because developing film was really expensive. They were shot on video, which was much cheaper. And video's frame rates are higher than film. And so when we see people of our generation see higher frame rate video of like people standing in a room, it reminds us of a soap opera. Right. You know how like if you flip the channels and you see something, you can kind of tell you can kind of tell it's a soap opera even before you see anything happening. Just, I guess it's from the cheap sets too, but also just from the quality of the lighting and the video. Well, yeah. the increased frame rate reminded people of a soap opera. And that's why you're saying like it looked like people like just sitting in a room. Like it looked, 
it looked cheap. It looked like what our generation associates with low production values. It didn't look cinematic. You don't want your you know, movie, Lawrence of Arabia, to look like a soap opera. Despite the fact you say, well, isn't it better? Higher frame rate is better, blah, blah, blah. It just looks wrong to us. And so the soap opera effect really yeah, it, lo- it looks. It has the feeling of something that was hastily produced and is maybe, I don't know if cheap is the right word, but, but budget production. It's something somebody would do in their basement or on public access TV. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't feel like it. And I'll tell you what, when, when I, a friend of mine had told me, sort of warned me, giving me a heads up about this, like, oh, yeah, you're going to want to turn that off. And I didn't know what they were talking about. So when we put, we put it on and, you know, got the new TV set up and wa- start watching things. Uh, and my first response was, hey, everything looks really crisp and sharp and, and wow, you know, it looks really good. And then I started watching things that I'd seen before uh, and, you know, just some regular TV shows. I'm like, yeah, this, this is... I'm not sure things look maybe too crisp. They look a little too, you know, why is Alec Baldwin in my, in my house? Like, I don't know if I want him in my house. I want to watch him on TV. I don't know if I want him standing there. And, uh, and then we, we got a movie and it was to, the, I'm pretty sure that it, yeah, it was actually now I'm remembering this vividly. It was the, uh, the new Star Trek, the JJ Abrams Star Trek and watching the intro and watching the effects I was struck by the fact that all of the effects, when when you see the Enterprise and the other ships flying around, you're like that they didn't they didn't look like movie effects. They looked like, you know, early two thousand time period CG effects. You know, they looked like they were rendered maybe without the the full rendering, without all the shadows. You know, it looked like something hastily done. I'm like, no, these effects don't look right. And then I remember what my friend told me. And found that thing buried deep down in the menus and switched it to whatever the, you know, the, the setting is that other TVs might have had defaulted. And then I well, watched. Have, well, these are your choices, though, for this thing. Your choice is use my television's motion compensation thing where it interpolates frames. It makes everything look a little bit too smooth. It's basically adding information that wasn't right. there in the source. I, you can turn it off. Right. You can, some of them have settings where you can do seven different times of motion interpolation, you know, or turn it high and low or medium or whatever you has. Or you can turn it off. Yeah. Usually with an entirely off, people think it looks jerky because of the judder effect, but sometimes they have a de-judder filter as separate from the motion compensation filter. So some, most people want to turn off motion compensation, but not maybe turn I'm, off Maybe I'm talking filter. about something else then. I'm going to have to well, go the, look the, at this, but I the, turned it off CD, and it looked great. The, it looked great the as soon as it effects, You're t- probably talking about motion compensation, because what I was just describing to you was the best case for motion compensation. The worst case is that frame one and frame two are radically different, and there is very little sensible interpolation between them. And if you have bad motion interpolation, it will try to figure out what images could possibly have come between frame one and frame two when like frame one and frame two are like at a cut or something or like fast motion or sports or something like that. Sports is a big one that people can pick up that it doesn't look right between these two very radically different frames of video to make anything in between them because this doesn't make sense. So fast moving objects, sports or cuts in scenes, really bad motion compensation software adds artifacts, basically adds crap to your picture and it makes it and craps it up with, with stuff that people don't like. So Depending on your television, your model, and your year, you may and the quality of your motion compensation, you may want to turn it off. You may you may want to turn it down. You may want to adjust it. And like I said, most uh, modern LCDs have a separate control for it. They call the de-judder control to try to make it so things aren't jerky, which is different than try to make up images that are between uh, each frame of video. And there's one more LCD problem 
before I get to the end of me buying stuff, the, the final LCD problem was the most thorny. It turned out to be the least important, but it bothered me that there was no good resolution. And that's the input lag, which is only really important to gamers, but as a gamer I, and as an anal retentive person, I, I found it important. Input lag is basically how long after an image is sent over the wire to the television set does that image appear on the screen? And it sounds like, well, who cares about that? Because if you start playing a movie, if there's like 100 milliseconds between the time the picture comes in the wire and it appears on the screen, so what? The movie starts 100 milliseconds after you thought it would. You'll never notice it. You'll just watch the movie. You'll be fine. All right? But with the video games, it makes a difference. With the video games, you have a controller in your hand, and what you're going to say is, I just saw an image on the screen that makes me think I have to move left. I will push the joystick left. That signal will travel over the wire or through the air from my controller to the game console. The game console will accept my input saying he wants to move to the left. And it will instruct the in-memory image of the game to move the character to the left. Then the rendering engine will run. It will render the next frame of video, which shows me move slightly to the left. And it will send that signal up the wire to the television. And then we get to input lag. How long does it take between the time that that signal is sent from the video game console to the time that it's displayed? If that time is too big, that means that the image I saw on the screen previously that told me I needed to turn the left was actually X number of milliseconds old. In fact, I'd already fallen in the pit and I didn't know it because that frame hadn't yet been displayed. So it's an interactive experience where I'm determining the images that appear on the screen, but I'm determining them based on images that I see that were sent from the video game console some number of milliseconds in the past. And this sounds all esoteric and, and academic, except that if you're playing, trying to play a video game where what you do with the controller isn't immediately reflected on the screen, it feels laggy. This is input lag. You're inputting controls and you don't see the results in a timely manner. Uh, it can be a big deal to people who play fighting games, which I don't, but fighting games require usually split-second timing and the ability to exactly see what's going on to time certain moves, even down to the frame of animation. Like when this character is in this frame of animation, you have to immediately press this button, and then two frames later, you have to move the stick to the left, and so on and so forth. But for any game, you can imagine if it's laggy, it's no good. That's, you know, if like you're playing a game on the Mac, for example, where you're not getting the frame rate you want, you know, you yank the mouse to the left, and if the screen doesn't immediately change the viewpoint to the left in a first-person shooter, that's lag. You don't like it. That's lag because the CPU is taking a long time to draw the next frame. But input lag on the TV is like something you can't control. It's part of the hardware. And you can imagine the sources of input lag. If, for example, your television is looking at each frame of video to determine which parts of the backlight it has to turn on or off or dim, like it has a dynamic backlight with, with local dimming, they call it, where they turn down parts of the backlight, that processing has to take some time. If it's doing motion compensation, where it's looking at this frame of the video and figuring out frames that are in between, that processing takes some period of time. All those features add to the input lag. Now, the worst thing about input lag is that only people who care about it are gamers, and TV manufacturers don't really care too much about gamers, so that there's no way to, you know, it's not a stat on the box. You say, give me the television with the lowest input lag. They'll look at you like you have 10 eyes. They have no idea what you're talking about. Or even if they do, they're like, well... Well, I don't know what has the worst input lag. Is there? It's really difficult to test, as you can imagine. You need like practically laboratory equipment to get milliseconds of input lag. And there's no standard for measuring it. And they generally just don't even care about it. So if you're afraid of getting a TV that makes games almost unplayable, and there were some very early televisions, especially very early LCD televisions that had all these effects but had slow processors doing them, where the input lag was such that even a casual person could notice that there was a problem. Now, all the manufacturers did was... So, okay, input lag seems to be an issue. We have to appease them, so maybe we'll try adding a game mode. Like, it would be a picture mode where you'd say, okay, I'm about to play a game, and all game mode would do would be to turn off all of those things. It would turn off motion compensation. It would turn off the dynamic backlight, for example. But then you're like, well, what the hell is the point of me spending all this money on this television with these fancy features when you have to turn them off for me to play a game? Like, for example, turning off the dynamic backlight 
make the whole screen look washed out because this is a television that's designed to have the backlight turned off underneath dark uh, areas. But if I can't leave it turned on because of input lag, you know, why am I even buying this television set? So it was, a, it was an annoying trade-off. And even when they added these, these features, there was no way you So what? So the game mode improves the input lag. I can buy that. How much does it improve it? Does it improve it to the level, but even in your game mode on your TV, it's still worse than this other TV with game mode turned off, you know, with the regular mode on it? If you're not giving me any numbers and there's no way I can, you know, do cross-product comparisons, you're basically in a complete inflammation void, and it was very frustrating to me. But still, here I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the HDTV plunge. LCD TVs are on the cutting edge. All I'm reading about is the latest advances in LCD televisions with their backlights and all their software and better processing. And they're getting much, much better, and the viewing angles are better. I'm sure I want one with local dimming because there's no way in hell I want anything uh, that, that has bad black levels. And I'll get one that looks like it, it has you know, no game mode in it because that makes me think that it has acceptable performance without the game mode. And so I went to a store... To, to, I, read, I read magazines that had a model picked out. Like, okay, I'm going to get this one. And it was, I can tell you it was a hellaciously expensive model. But I'm like, look, okay, I've been saving for an HDTV for like, you know, 15 years. Got the money. I'm going to go buy a big fancy LCD TV. And I, I think I know the model I want, but I'm sure as heck not going to buy something as expensive without seeing it in person. So I go to the store to look at this TV. And I ask the salesperson, hey, do you have TVX? I want to look at it. And he brings me over to the TV and I look at it. And I'm looking at TV, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, do you sell a lot of these? You know, uh, what do you think of this TV? And the guy doesn't waffle. He immediately says, I wouldn't buy this TV. And I said, well, well you know, why? I've, all I've been reading about these magazines, this is like the best TV. It's, it's certainly the most expensive one you have in the showroom here. What's the problem? Why wouldn't you buy this TV? He said, well, this, you know, this is an LCD TV, and plasmas have better picture. I was like, plasmas, the, one, the ones where they use all the power and, and burn in and that ancient thing and they weigh, you know, 10 times as much and they're thicker and stuff. Why would you buy a plasma? It's like, well, plasmas have better black levels and better color saturation. And, you know, so I, so I said, show me. So he had plasmas on display and he brought up a bunch of test images and we looked at the thing side by side. And sure enough, every single thing that he told me about plasmas or his LCDs was 100% true to my own eyes. You could see it. Plasmas have no problem with fast-moving images, no ghosting. You know, they're like CRTs, like little tiny CRTs inside there. And I was like, well, what about the burn-in thing? It's like, oh, they have, they're much better about that now. It's still an issue, but they have uh, technologies to compensate for it, to like rotate the image on the screen, and dim the screen automatically. And even if you leave them on, burn-in is basically a thing of the past. Image retention is still somewhat of an issue, but just don't leave the image on the screen uh, all the time and you'll be fine. Like, what about power draw? Well, power draw is actually much better. And in fact, with LED backlighting coming to LCD TVs, the, you know, the LEDs are using more power than the, the cold cathodes were for the backlight, especially since they're 10 times brighter than they used to. So actually, power consumption, plasmas still take more power, but they're not as bad as they used to be, not even close. And then he showed me some more problems with the LCD TVs, which I had known about, but it was interesting to see them in person. One of them was that with, with local dimming, as you can imagine, uh, like picture the credits of, of a movie where you have a completely black screen with white text in the middle. So a local dimming screen, what it'll do is say, okay, backlight off for everywhere around the outside of the screen. But for the part where the text is, turn on the backlight. It's 100% white text. So turn on the backlight 100% behind the white text. But, of course, it's not pixel accurate. So you turn on, like, regions 4, 5, and 6, which are, like, you know, 6 inches on a side in the middle of the screen to put the backlight behind that text. And what you end up getting is, like, a halo around the white text. Mm. You have a, a black background, but you turn on the backlight all behind the image so the leak the light leaking through around the text makes it look like kind of the white text is like glowing unnaturally it's a big white halo around the text 
Uh, and that's like one of the disadvantages of local dimming. So he showed me the same thing on a plasma screen. And sure enough, on the plasma screen, the white text is white and the black is black because there are no electrons at all hitting the back of the little phosphorus that are next to that. So I went home kind of depressed because I did all this research thinking, you know, I have the exact model I'm going to get. I just have to look at it. And this guy had more or less convinced me that, that you know, plasma was the way to go. So, someone in the chat room has been very emphatic telling me to go for a projector. Yes, if you are, if you are a video nerd, first of all, you should be sneering at everything that I've said here because you know more about this topic than I do. But yes, if you are a video nerd, they for a while have been into the projectors instead of the screens because you can make a projector that produces a much larger image than you can a regular television. And uh, projectors are extremely expensive and they have their own trade-offs in terms of noise and heat and stuff like that. So right. I was not in the market for a projector. So I went back home and did research on plasmas. Uh, and... The plasmas, everything he said about plasmas as I read up on it was true. And it was interesting to me that I had not found this information on my own. That if you're just reading about the latest advances in technology like I was at this time, you'll end up reading all about LCD televisions or LED televisions as people call them, even though they're LCDs with LED backlights in them. But however you want to see them there, they are the hot new thing. And you will not hear about plasmas that much. But the bottom line is that plasmas still have better pictures for less money than LCD televisions. This is a very strange situation where usually if this was the case, you would think it would be common knowledge. But in my experience, it isn't. People go to the store and they, and they say, well, you know, I'll, I'll take one of those LCD televisions. Not that they're bad or anything, but it's just like if you want the best picture, you actually have to buy the less expensive television set. So what I ended up buying was a Panasonic plasma screen that was about half the price of the, the LED backlit LCD that I wanted mm. and about the same size and has better picture. And what you know, disadvantages that it has is the yes, I have to worry about image retention and stuff like that. Uh, and it's bigger and heavier and thicker, but I don't really care. I'm not hanging on a wall. I actually have it on a TV stand. But in the end, that's what that's what I ended up with. Hmm. Now, after you've heard this tale of television uh, buying, and this this is like a, a long cycle and a culmination of like oh, 10, 15 years, and at least like I spent a year before I decided what to buy. What did I forget? I have no idea. I didn't have any idea either. I thought like, boy, I've got, you know, I did everything that I could do. I did the research. I looked in person. I, I took new information. I incorporated it into my decision process. I, I didn't get stuck on the, the LED thing. I changed right. my, you know, right. I saw TV that I was going to buy in person. What did I forget? What did you forget? <laughs> it, it still kills me that I forgot this. That it just, it just. I didn't even think of it. So if you are like me and you're on an maybe we leave it a we leave it a mystery. No, I'm going to tell you because right. well, I'll wrap it up. I'm almost done. <laughs> I I didn't even entertain the possibility that televisions could have fans. Oh, you and your noise issues. That's right. Fans. I didn't even think of it. And now, you'd never hear that in the store. Yeah, forget in the store. There's so much white noise in a store like that, never like a big it. box, you know, Best Buy or whatever. You will never hear them. You also incidentally don't see the back of the television. No. And even if you did, you would just see a series of holes. They, they don't. Like, they don't want you to to see the back of it. But even if you did, they they all just have holes in the back of them. Well, the television I bought for a reasonably big chunk of change has fans in the back. Of it. Mm. Fans that probably nobody but me can hear. Like if I tell people to hear that and I, I specifically point out the sound, yes, they can hear it. It's white noise. These are very big, low RPM fans. They're not noisy at all. You can barely hear them. But had I known this television had fans, 
I probably would have looked around to find an alternative that didn't have fans. And mm. they have fans, you know, for heat reasons and, you know, the same reason anything has fans because right. plasmas are big and hot. Not every plasma has fans, not, not by a long shot, but this particular model I bought has fans. And in fact, most Panasonic plasmas do have fans. So at this point, you know. See, we had a, we had a fan in our, and do you remember, you've heard of DLP, right? Yes, I know all about that. The terrible, terrible technology. That I, didn't was, even, I didn't even list that in my technologies for HDTVs, but yeah. Well, no, I mean, they're, they're pretty much gone now, but we had one before we had this TV, and uh, it, it too had a fan. It's probably along the same lines as yours. Like, I heard it. Other people didn't necessarily hear it, but I did, and I did not. I'm not that, like, sensitive to, to white noise of that sort, but I, I heard it. Like, I knew it was there, and switching to this uh, LED, LCD, TV that we have now, it's silent. Silent. Can't even tell it's on. Yeah. And CRTs generally didn't have fans either. No. That's why it just didn't occur to me to even, you know, why would like you it's think one about of the things that? you would check. And certainly they do not list it in reviews because no one is crazy like us about noise, right? So right. they don't they don't by the way, this television has fans. If you know to look for it now, you can like look at the manual and look at like the diagrams and say, Oh, there's a circular opening here that's gotta be for a fan versus just the little dotty holes and right. stuff. Right. I mean, and who doesn't look at the diagrams and the manuals ahead of time? I, I did. I looked at the manual, but, but all I was looking at was like the number of ports and like, you know, all the because you, know, you can get the manuals online in PDFs. So I highly recommend that. It's a great way to look at uh, consumer electronics product before you buy it. Google for the PDF of the manual. But mm-hmm. I just I just was not looking for it. So if I had it all to do over again. Now I know. Now I know. Check to see if the thing has fans. I didn't return the TV, you know, because in general, I've been really happy with it. It's the, the picture is amazing. It's been reliable. Haven't had any issues with, you know, heat or burn in power consumption is not a big a deal for considering I have my Mac Pro on most of the day. It probably uses way more television than uh, way more electricity than my television does, which is off most of the time. Uh, there's one other thing which I don't fault myself for because there's no way I could have really known. The particular model of television that I bought was lauded in the press for having amazing black levels. Uh, but as it turns out, about six months, eight months down the line, uh, they learned that the black levels of this television deteriorate over time. Uh-huh. And there's no way the reviewers could have known that because you don't keep a TV for like two months when you review it, right? You just keep it for a week or two and you take your measurements and you say, boy, this TV is great. I think there might have been a class action lawsuit about it or something like that. I don't know what state it is in or whatever, but the black levels are not as good in a year-old version of this television as they are when they are original. It still looks great. still fantastic, but it's not just like the, oh, wow, amazing uh, that it was uh, when people were reviewing this television. So, so I'm going to give quick buying advice to people. So if I was buying a television today, if I had not spent the money for this television, I had to buy one today, what television would I buy? And I'll give you specific model numbers. So. Uh, so <laughs> I, I still like plasma over LED. Everything I said is true. You can still, you still cannot find an LCD based television that has as good picture as a plasma, the best plasma TV and the, the LED televisions are more expensive. If you're not shopping at the top of the, of the line, then your options are much wider open. If you, if you're, if you say, I don't care about the very best quality picture I can get for the money, then you have many options in, in that range. I think LCDs will still kind of be more expensive, but once you're in the middle of the range, it's like, you know, well, the, the pictures are comparable and you can shop based on price, size, and features and thickness and stuff like that. There are many other options uh, in the televisions, but if you're looking at the, give me the best picture I can get, you actually have to spend less money. Don't buy the $6,000 dynamic backlight RGB LED backlit LCD television because that will cost you six grand and its picture will not be as good as the three grand plasma. Buy the three grand plasma. So 
if I had to buy a TV today, I would get the Panasonic TCP 55 VT30. Oh, of course, the VT30. Yeah. That's how they refer to it in the lines, the VT something or other. So the Panasonic line is always TCP. I don't know what that stands for, TC, Panasonic something. Then there's a number which tells you the number of inches. Then there's a letter or one or two letters and, and some digits. So the, the V line has been there top of the line. So I have in my house a, a VT20. Uh, so 55 VT20, which is or no, 50 VT20, which is 50 inch version of the 20. And then the next year they came out with the 25, and this year they have the 30. I don't even know if the 30s are out yet. I think they have the 35s coming out still this year. These are the same Panasonic plasmas that, that I use now. They have fans in them. It at least might surprise you to think that I would buy the one with the fans again. Yes, I would buy it again with the fans because supposedly the, in the model year after mine, in the, the two models, that, two or three models after mine, they fixed the black level thing. So now when people test them, they're wary of it now, and they're saying, okay, well, this, is the, this line had some back, uh, the backlight problems, or not back, black level problems in the past, but Panasonic assures us that they're better now, and now reviewers are checking on it. Like, let's go back six months from now and check that TV and make sure the black level hasn't changed and stuff. So I think the black level issues are addressed. It's still the best picture you can get at any price on any television set that's not a projector, projector people. <laughs> and it's cheaper than the top-of-the-line LED LCD television. So I would I would buy again the one with the fans in it. That tells you how what I think of the picture of this television set. It's excellent. It's only about three grand. Uh, the interesting thing about prices on television is it's kind of like buying a car, where the price on the outside is kind of just a suggestion, and you have much leeway to haggle and look for deals, uh, much more so than in like for example buying a Mac where you have no leeway whatsoever, more right. or less. But with televisions, you can find deals. That, that is my recommendation if you want the very best picture quality you can get for the money and you don't want to buy a projector. Uh, a few other little notes here. 3D, almost every TV these days comes with 3D if you're shopping at the top of the line. I think it's dumb. I think it's a fad. For those you're who don't know, what, it, what does it mean, John, when they say it comes with 3D? They just mean that the television has the ability to project uh, the, what the left eye is supposed to see using one set of, uh, uh, on one frame and then what the right eye is supposed to see on the next frame and then you usually wear glasses with right. active shutters on them where the television sends a signal to the glasses and tell the glasses, all right, blank out the right eye because I'm going to show you the le- what the left eye is supposed to see. And the glasses do that in a microsecond. And they say, okay, blank out the left eye because the next frame I, sh- I show on the television is going to be what the, what the right eye is supposed to see. And that's how you get a 3D effect. I've, I've seen plenty of movies in 3D. I saw Avatar in 3D. What did I recently see in 3D? I think I, did I see Toy no, I saw Toy Story in 2D. But anyway, I'm not a big fan of that type, type of 3D. It's going to come on your TV anyway. You don't have to use it. You don't have to ever turn it on. It's otherwise just the same as any other TV. If you don't put on the glasses, don't watch any 3D material, it doesn't make a difference. The fact that it does come with it, if you want, if you want to watch it someday on a lark or your kids want to watch it, it's fine. I think in maybe five, ten years. Like The thing is, they'll keep including it just because you don't have to do anything special to include it except to have a little signal thing to send to those glasses and then sell those people the glasses, right? So... I'm not going to say, oh, this 3D is going to go away. It's so cheap to include that I think it'll just, it's going to be there permanently. I just think it's dumb and it's a fad, so forget about it. Uh, <laughs> calibration. That's the other option. Calibration, if you spend time in these audiovisual forums like I did doing all this research, you'll see tons of people obsessing over how to calibrate their televisions to show a perfectly accurate image. I would say don't go nuts, but be aware that calibration exists because televisions in the store and display models are intentionally calibrated to look awful. All, the, all the, the colors are super-duper saturated. The brightness is cranked way up. The contrast is cranked way up. Look, everything looks like you know, the Wizard of Oz when it changes to color. <laughs> it's not 
that's not how things are supposed to look. So when you bring it home, do get some sort of calibration thing, whether it's just like a little, you know, DVD or Blu-ray or something that has test images. Uh, if you have one of the Star Wars movies, the most THX certified DVDs or Blu-rays come with a little section on the DVD where you can calibrate your TV and they'll show you test images and stuff and you can adjust it. Do that at least once. Don't obsess over it. Don't go crazy. I feel like that the super accurate THX modes that some televisions come with where they're preset calibrations to be as accurate as possible and you can tweak them a little bit further. Sometimes those look a little bit too washed out to me. Like I know that's supposed to be accurate color and that the original color gamut of the source material was actually pretty narrow. So to be faithful to what was recorded on film, what, what the creators meant for you to see, you have to necessarily narrow the, the color gamut of your screen. But most uh, modern televisions can display a much wider range of colors, and a lot of them have this cheat mode where they say, I know your source material only has this color gamut, but we're going to display it using this much wider color gamut, which is not faithful strictly, but sometimes it looks good. Like, for example, if I'm watching, you know, something on a desert island, I want the blues to be blues and the green of the palm trees to be green, and I'll, you know, go over-boosted and oversaturated a little bit with, you know, my, my setting that's not the completely faithful cinema setting. So I would recommend at least looking into it uh, oh, and most, a lot of TVs also have a game mode, which is similarly awful, where they just say, games, everybody likes games, crank up all the colors as high as they can go. That looks awful. Don't use game mode with games. Just get one nice setting that you think you can live with that looks good, and maybe two settings, one for movies and one for television, uh, and, and go with that. And I have another item here on television UIs, but there's no way we have time for that. Yeah, we're, we're pretty far into it. Tried to fit it all in. So what do you think? It's not programming languages, huh? For me, this was this felt geekier than the programming language discussion. Well, it has it's has wider applicability because lots of people may be shopping for television. Yeah, there are a lot of HD nerds out there. Yeah, and TV I don't think nerds. it's and I don't think it's common knowledge that plasmas are even a contender. And you know, everyone's buying the the, the LED TVs, which I still hate that term. Completely inaccurate. All right, so. We better we better wrap this up. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of uh, fu on this one. No, I think if any video nerd was listening to this, they they already to turned it off because it's yeah. not you know I'm I'm a dilettante in this area, right? So, but I think for regular people can benefit from my experience. So thanks to WebTrends.com, go there, check this out, especially if you're serious about your traffic and your sales and what's going on with your business. WebTrends.com/slash Hypercritical, that would be where to go. And uh, to check out the thing that MailChimp made, uh, the very, very cool two-factor authentication, you will want to go. You can go to it from MailChimp.com, but you can also go to AlterEgoApp.com. And you can follow John Syracusa on uh, Twitter at Syracusa. Very simple. No J. Not your first name, just the last name. And that little Italian town... uh, or Italian, as you say, maybe trying to get that from me at some point. I'd be concerned. They can come and get it. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And we thank you for listening. We'll be back uh, next week. Have a great one. Mm-hmm.